You're listening to The Bobby Miller Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bobby Miller Show. Uh, this is our second podcast ever. Really excited uh, to be joined this week by a really exciting guest. Um, we've gone through a little bit of a rebranding uh, since our first recording. Uh, I know it's been a while. Uh, I had a really cringe name before. Now we're just going to go stick with a pretty simple name, uh, slightly less cringe, The Bobby Miller Show. Um, but enough about me. Uh, I'm going to jump right in and introduce our guest. Um, today, today, I'm really happy to be hosting and having on Nate Hoffman. Nate is an incoming Intercollegiate Studies Institute Fellow at National Review and a 2021 Plebis Fellow at the Claremont Institute. His writing has been published in a number of uh, national outlets, including the American Mind, the American Conservative City Journal, National Review, and a number of others. Uh, he is a regular guest on television and podcasts and radio, and he graduated from Colorado College in May. So I'm really excited to be hosting Nate on today because he's a really a rising star in the conservative movement, uh, upcoming public intellectual. And uh, I think, it would, I think uh, the focus of the podcast today is going to be on inter, intra-right wing debates. So both Nate and I are fairly conservative. We're both right of center, but we both have uh, different ideas on, on where we think the conservative movement should be going and where we think the country should be going and, and which policies and principles are going to get us there. So uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to, uh, to explore that space. Um, so I think we're going to start by just talking about, uh, you know, uh, where Nate has spent his summer. Uh, Nate, I, I, I mentioned in your bio that, uh, that you were a fellow at the Claremont Institute. Uh, Claremont has gone through a bit of an evolution over the past few years. Uh, it's gone from uh, what was once known as like a West Coast Straussian uh, sort of think tank. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, uh, <laughs> Nate could probably do a much better job of explaining this. Where do we even begin? Yeah. yeah. West Coast <laughs> Straussians, East Coast Straussians, Midwest yeah, yeah, Straussians. Yeah. It, it's yeah. all, a lot of it's intellectual masturbation. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but bottom line, it was, it was pretty much a mainstream conservative think tank up until a few years ago uh, when it started to sort of drift in a more nationalist, uh, new right direction. So, I just, Nate, I really want you just to get your take on, you, you, you've sort of spent, I, I believe you spent the summer there. Uh, I want to get your take on, 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 on Claremont, where it's going. And I have some questions about, you know, some of the, you know, the direction the place is going in. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, I have heard that uh, the Claremont Institute is uh, controversial these days, and it's uh, been in the news. This, that's what people tell me, at least. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, so obviously, the, the, the basic disclaimer that needs to be gotten out of the way with uh, is that I'm not speaking institutionally for Claremont at all. I was a Publius fellow there. I wrote for their um, their their outlet, uh, The American Mind, this summer. I worked there. I love Claremont deeply. They're, they're I think, probably my favorite uh, institution in conservatism right now. I really, um, I, I'm attracted to their vision of the kind of uh, right politics that they want to attract. But I actually, I don't think that they're any less West Coast Straussy now um, than they have been at any point in, in the past. They would say, and I would say, uh, this is different from what I think their, their detractors say, um, that the kind of sort of nationalist, populist politics that they're articulating, the sort of 
intellectual Trumpism that's, that's, that's broadly associated with Claremont is the application of the principles that they've always held to the necessities and the sort of political priorities of the moment. And if you actually read the Claremont Review of Books, the sort of longer, more thoughtful stuff in the American mind, you listen to people like Charles Kessler, um, you know, you read his stuff, it makes sense um, uh, if you actually take them seriously rather than just sort of setting your hair on fire and, and, and hysterics about how the neo-fascists, like a lot of people seem to be accusing them of these days, um, that, that this is the best articulation of a defense of the, the principles of the founding in a, in a moment of regime crisis in America. It's a combination of sort of eternal principles, which are the, the principles of the founding that, that Claremont is defending with the necessity of statesmanship and prudence, a la someone like Abraham Lincoln, who obviously features pretty heavy, heavy, heavily in the, in the Claremont imagination. Um, and applying those principles prudently in the moment is what statecraft and statesmanship um, is, is all about. And Claremont would argue, and I, I think there's something to this, that a lot of institutional beltway conservatism has actually completely forgotten how to do politics. They've forgotten what statesmanship actually looks like. Um, and they're stuck in this sort of calcified repetition of 1984 Reaganism um, that is not actually a, a good way to advance the principles that we all claim to care about. Um, so they're accused of betraying their principles. I think that's hogwash. I think that they're actually the, the most creative and dynamic think tank in terms of applying eternal conservative principles to the needs of the moment of anything on, on the American right today. Um, but like I said, obviously that's a controversial proposition and a lot of smart people disagree with me. Uh, so <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a point uh, that's, that's obviously worth, worth debating for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that is uh, yeah, def definitely <laughs> up for debate. And uh, I do have some questions. So, you know, I myself am, am probably just as, as critical of this, you know, calcified zombie Reaganism, uh, you know, sort of uh, inside the beltway, uh, direction for conservatism as, as you are. And I think that's really embodied by like a place like Heritage Foundation. Uh, and so, so I, I, I totally get, you know, wanting to change that up. Um, but, but how do you, how do you think that Claremont is really uh, applying conservative principles to like the problems of the 20th century? Where do you see this, uh, the, the, you know, where are they, uh, you know, exemplifying statesmanship? I mean, I, I, from what I've seen, you know, uh, putting that, that article in the Bulwark, <laughs> which I'm not a publication, which I'm really not a fan of. I'm more of a dis dispatch guy. Aside, uh, you know, they, they they seem to be playing host to some pretty uh, sort of loony figures right now, like uh, Jack Pospiak and Charlie Kirk. You know, maybe Charlie Kirk isn't as uh, uh, he's loony you know, and malignant. Way. Yeah, but 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 you know, some pretty uh, shady characters that are are generally associated with the alt right. I mean. Jack Pospiak, I think I'm getting his name right. You know, he's been seen with Richard Spencer. He's he's tweeted some pretty anti-Semitic stuff. So I'm just curious how you see uh, what Claremont is doing. You know, they've given him a fellowship. So how do you see Claremont embodying statesmanship? Yeah, I mean, on the sort of Pasovic point, right, he's the one that gets thrown in Claremont's face a lot because they made him a Lincoln fellow, um, I think, last year or the year before. And it was obviously a cause of a lot of outrage um, on the institutional right. Look, I get it. I'm not going to defend everything that Pasovic has said or or, um, or stands for. And, and Claremont wouldn't defend everything that he's said or stands for. Their argument, again, from a position of prudence, um, uh, 
uh, comes from a, a recognition of the fact that we are in a kind of regime crisis in America right now. Um, and the principles and the political philosophy that we as conservatives purport to care about is under an existential threat in a lot of ways. I mean, we have an ascendant left that has cons consolidated control in all of our institutions and hates us in our way of life and genuinely wants to destroy it in a way um, that is, is, is much more open and vicious than anything, certainly that I've seen in my short lifetime, but I think that's existed in America um, for a long time. And the right needs to think coalitionally and they need to think politically. Um, and we need to be open to advancing a broad coalition that embraces some characters that, you know, might've said things in the past that we uh, find abhorrent or disagree with. Um, but recognizing that those are people who are broadly still on our side and have an enormous amount of influence. And that if we can bring them into the fold and try to sort of cultivate them in a way that actually makes them more capable of articulating the principles we care about, and then they can go back to the places where they exercise influence um, and, you know, have been imprinted with a sort of Claremont's way of, way of thinking, uh, that's a win. Uh, and, and we need to not spend so much time gatekeeping to our right uh, because it's, it's it's a waste of energy. The left never gatekeeps to their left, as far as I can tell. Um, and we actually need to try to put on some kind of united front and understand that the enemy is in the trenches on the other side. <laughs> and they're not the people on our right for the most part. That doesn't mean embrace the Ku Klux Klan. It doesn't mean embrace Richard Spencer, but it does mean a little less pearl clutching about the fact that Jack Posobiec, you know, tweeted something unsavory five years ago um, or something. You know, the, the, the Claremont philosophy is like, Look, Jack Posobiec's going to have a lot of influence, um, particularly in the online world, uh, regardless of whether or not we make him a Lincoln Fellow. But so, so we, we can't change that one way or the other. But we would rather bring him into a fellowship for a week, spend a week teaching him about the statesmanship of Lincoln and the principles of the founding, than not teach him those things. Um, because he's, again, someone who's going to go on to be influential. So even if we don't like everything that he's ever tweeted or said, uh, we would like as as much as possible to try to imprint him with our way of thinking so that he can spread that doctrine. And that seems entirely reasonable to me. Uh, if we were in a healthier moment politically uh, where the right wasn't under such siege, we might have a little more luxury in terms of gatekeeping. Um, but I, I genuinely just don't think that we are right now. And I think a lot of institutional conservatism really has failed to to recognize the urgency of the moment uh, in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, um I agree with some of what you said. I, I, I totally agree with you that we ought to be thinking, you know, conservatives ought to be thinking more coalitionally uh, and, 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 and what are the right strategies in terms of winning. I'm not sure how bringing in a guy who's said such controversial things, I'm not sure how that broadens our coalition and broadens, uh, you know, conservatism's appeal, putting the Republican Party aside, because I, I don't think that, you know, conservatism and you know, the Republican Party's electoral success are exactly synonymous, you know, but uh, the success of conservatism, in my mind, uh, depends, on bringing, depends on bringing in as many people into the fold as we can. And I think people like, like Jack and others on the sort of fringe right uh, actually push more people away than, than bring in. And that's why we ought to do, I think, stricter enforcement of gatekeeping. And, and, and you say that on the left, there's no, there's no gatekeeping keeping of any kind. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure how true that is. I, I think I think actually now uh, on the right that, that the, 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 the problem was more acute. I mean, if you if you look at, you know, the uh, the primary the other day, I think it was Ohio's 11th district uh, where, 
You had a moderate uh, Chantel Brown, uh, the entire Democratic establishment basically pouring in and going in to help her defeat Nina Turner, uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, someone from Bernie Sanders wing of the party, uh, someone who headed his uh, pack, Our Revolution. Whereas on the right, you know, in the last couple of years, basically the fringe has totally deposed the establishment. So I, I, I'm not sure how true that, 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 that thinking is. And the other thing I'd say is uh, you talk about how the left is basically controls all of our institutions right now, you know, across the board. And, and, that, and that's definitely true. The, the left wing view of the world right now is the predominant uh, sort of perspective in all the elite institutions across the United States right now. But I think the, that sort of existential thinking embodied by, you know, the, you know, the Flight 93 election essay, that, that, that sort of Flight 93 mindset uh, that, that, you know, if we don't do something now, we don't act now and, 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 and put aside, you know, whatever uh, checks on, 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 on power uh, that, 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 that conservatives have usually cherished, uh, if we don't put those aside now, we're going to lose the country completely. I think that's very pernicious to our politics. And I think that one of the reasons why we're living in such a toxic political moment is precisely because of this sort of constant existential uh, 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 paranoia uh, that we're living through. Uh, and, and, and it's not just unique to the right. I think on both sides, you see this. But I'm curious what you think of all that. Yeah, well, again, like I, I don't agree with every word of the Flight 93 election, but just the, the point that's that's made against it a lot on the right is that it's pernicious to our politics. And, and you're right in a sense, right? I mean, that thinking is does lend itself to a, a kind of... Um, politics that uh, is does does violence to the sort of traditional constitutional order that, that conservatives care about, that in and of itself doesn't actually make the Flight 93 election wrong. That's an argument against the effects of that kind of thinking, but that doesn't actually address the central thesis of the Flight 93 election, which is that we are in a kind of crisis. And, and, and that, I think, is the more important question, right? Not the effects of this kind of thinking are bad, right? Is this kind of thinking necessary based on the actual argument about how bad things are in America? Uh, and I, I think that he's basically right um, about how bad things are in America. Um, I agree that I think it's a misinterpretation of the Flight 93 election to say that justifies anything and everything. But I agree that a kind a version of that kind of thinking can lend, lend itself to sort of unlimited anything goes um, politics. And that's certainly one that, that conservatives should reject. Uh, on the gatekeeping point, I mean, it's, it's not true that the, that the, the fringes um, totally control the GOP. I think like a perfect analog to the, what happened with, with Nina Turner was, you know, Steve King, right, a few years ago, um, who was beheaded by the, the institutional GOP. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the broader point about like the left is, is that they spend a lot less energy um, going after the really far left types in, in their coalition than Republicans and conservatives do. And I think this has to do a lot with the sort of fact that the, the elite media and the sort of institutions that are tasked with setting the narrative have a left-wing bias. So they're going to spend a lot more time going after the far-right people than the far-left people. But perfect example, I mean, you look at Ilhan Omar with her sort of anti-Israel comments. Um, there was supposed to be this pretty easy resolution on the, on the, on, you know, the congressional floor. I'm sure you remember this, right. Where they're condemning anti-Semitism. They couldn't do it, right. The Democrats had to add on to anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia, bigotry, et cetera, et cetera. And then they passed it. And then Republicans didn't vote for it because they saw it as a cop-out, which it was. And then the media hit Republicans for not voting for a, you know, a resolution censuring anti-Semitism and said that's because they're racist. Right. So, I mean, the whole, the whole thing was a farce and it was absurd, but the, the, the democratic party has, has no energy and no interest really or an investment in or a stomach for uh, actually really policing uh, their left flank. Now they might 
the institutional Democratic Party might in the primary try to get the moderate over the progressive. Certainly that happens. And that's something that I think is frustrating to no end to the sort of Bernie bros of the world and, and understandably so. Um, but once those progressives are in Congress, you know, that's the, actually in many ways, they sort of set the tone for the entire Democratic Party. That's what we've seen with the squad um, in, in recent years. They have an enormously outsized influence yeah. uh, considering their actual numbers. Um, it's true that the right's interest in gatekeeping their far right flank has reduced in recent years. And I think there are good parts of that and bad parts of that. Um, but it is also true that the institutional GOP, again, because of the sort of broader narrative that they're party to as elites, um, spends a lot more time worrying and pearl clutching and trying to address concerns about, uh, you know, their far right flank, um, even if they don't end up acting on it all the time, um, than, than, than the, their, their counterparts in the Democratic Party does. And the perfect example is this, like, you know, the, the, the GOP didn't end up really doing anything about MTG, but they spent weeks disassociating themselves from her and try, answering questions from the media about it and trying to explain away the things that she had said. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, people like Liz Cheney still spend all their time sort of trying to dunk on her um, on Twitter, right? And, and the, the analog on the left is, is, is much smaller. I mean, Nancy Pelosi waves away Ilhan Omar's comments as, you know, it's whatever, right? And she, she doesn't have to answer those questions. So the right needs to actually sort of just stop responding to this narrative that is created by their enemies and just not answer these questions, like not play those people's games and sort of try to get their own, their own house in order um, rather than trying to sort of constantly uh, uh, create a GOP that is palatable to MSNBC because that's not a GOP yeah. that any want to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we can kind of go back and forth on, on, you know, who's more guilty of, <laughs> of, of, of doing a worse job policing their uh, extremist flanks on which party, uh, you know, I would just beyond just like the obvious, you know, the 2016 election and, uh, you know, the fact that, that, that MTG, uh, even though she was kind of stripped of her committee assignments, you know, she's still heralded as like an up and coming voice in the party. Whereas, you know, Cheney's basically, you know, uh, you know, she's a pariah beyond that. I mean, you look at like, like how Paul Gosar, you know, openly, uh, fundraises with guys like Nick Fuentes and faces zero consequences for that. But but you know, regard. I think I think I think the problem isn't unique to one side. I think that the 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 root of the problem is honestly because our parties are historically weak. Um, that that the institutional Republican and Democratic parties uh, basically are totally incapable of uh, actually clamping down on extremism in any meaningful way because they don't have control over which candidates actually represent the party in general elections. This is why I, I'm someone. Who and I know this is a rather unpopular idea, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm someone who's actually in favor of of just canceling primaries altogether, um, uh, or at least making you know primaries you know have uh, introducing ranked choice voting like New York City did uh, for primary elections. So you get at least a more consensus candidate, not someone who just gets the plurality from the fringes. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think that would really strengthen our parties uh, and, and and make our politics a lot less toxic. So what do you think about that proposal? No, look, I totally get the argument for it. And from an institutionalist perspective, it makes a lot of sense, right? All of the arguments against primaries uh, sort of polarizing both parties and, and, and driving people to the fringes and allowing sort of a fringe part of, of the base on both sides to dictate who's in power, like there's, there's something to that. The problem, again, is the context in which we're making this argument. And I think this is probably a division between people who are in favor of this idea and who aren't. Um, and in the broader sort of institutional conservative movement, again, is... Um, 
at the risk of being repetitive, it's, it's, it's a, it's just how significant of a crisis America is in uh, today. And B it's how much you trust the institutional GOP to actually be capable of addressing that. And my experience in the last five years uh, or, or more is, is that I have zero faith that the institutional GOP is interested at all in actually addressing um, the sort of core crises of the American regime, or is even actually aware that that they are in crisis. I mean, as far as I can tell, the sort of Paul Ryans of the world were perfectly happy to watch, uh, you know, an entire generation of children be taught to hate the country that they're going to inherit, um, as long as they could get a corporate tax cut in for corporations that were going to turn around and use their corporate power to undermine democracy in states like South Dakota um, uh, by forcing them, uh, you know, to to repeal their their ban on biological men competing in women's sports, right? So, I mean, the, this is sort of this the, you, this this unravels, but the 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 sort of Paul Ryan's, Kevin McCarthy's, Liz Cheney's of the world. Um, you know, I, someone like Liz Cheney, I have, I have respect for. I think she's a fundamentally decent person. Um, is completely not prepared to take on the challenges that uh, America is going to be facing in the next couple of decades. Uh, and for all of Donald Trump's manifest flaws, he was someone who, on a very sort of primitive animal instinct way, actually got this. And the Republican base actually understands it a lot better than the Republican leaders do. Again, in a very primitive, inarticulate, often sort of. Um, violently populist way, the Republican base understands that America's in crisis. Uh, Paul Ryan does not understand that. Liz Cheney does not understand that. Or insofar as they do, they think it's Trump's fault. And and they do not understand the nature of the problem we're facing. And until we have a GOP leadership that does, I'm a populist. I'm someone who trusts the instincts of the GOP base more than I trust the instincts of the GOP leaders. Okay, so let's let's just get down to the nub of this. What do you think is the you know crisis, crisis in the American regime as you see it? Because you know, I, I'm someone who also thinks the country's uh, in decline. I think, I think, you know, President Trump probably put his foot, foot in the gas in terms of accelerating our, our, in some ways our, that's our true. decline. Yeah. Uh, I think he, you know, precipitated uh, a, a major cultural revolution where, you know, if you want to talk about normalizing, you know, some of these really pernicious, uh, uh, you know, social progressivism, you know, I, th- I think he normalized, uh, you know, uh, transgenderism and 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 uh, made BLM uh, more powerful uh, to the to the average American because he, he was just so toxic and he turned so many people away. Um, but I, I'm curious as to you know uh, as to uh, what you think the American crisis is because I, I think we're just on two different wavelengths when we're talking about American decline. So what how do you see uh, us in decline? Yeah, I mean, it's a number of different things yeah. intersecting with one yeah. another, right? But I mean, on an institutional level, you have uh, a a constitutional system that is completely divorced from anything that the founders gave us. Most of our laws are made in the executive bureaucracy uh, today. Congress doesn't do anything except for pontificate in front of cameras. They literally do not legislate. Anymore. Completely agree with you on that. One. We're governed right. Well, this is right. This is, the, this is the uncontroversial one with my, you know, my friends over at, at you know, places like the Dispatch, and and they're right about this. Right is. Um, we are governed in many ways. We live in a kind of oligarchy. We are governed by unelected administrators uh, in the executive branch. They yeah. make literally the majority of our and, laws. And the CDC eviction moratorium is just a prime example. Perfect example. Yeah, right. Yeah. And this is, you know, but, but that stuff has been going on for decades now. Yeah. It's the, it's the sort of Wilsonian progressivism coming home to roost. Um, but people don't, Americans don't understand this. Like self-government doesn't exist in America anymore in, in any traditional way that we've understood it. Um, our elections by and large are, you know, with with some sort of small differences at the margins, um, are show elections in terms of the fact that the actual 
deep sort of administrative bureaucracy doesn't change that much from president to president. I mean, during Trump's first term, something like 40% of the people in his executive branch are registered Democrats still, right? So it's, it's, it is literally a kind of unelected clerisy that makes laws for us. That is connected with the undergoing cultural revolution that's happening right now, which is directly related to the views of uh, and the class, the ruling class of people who are in the administrative bureaucracy, because they're coming from the elite universities, from the centers of power in, in the culture industry um, that are undergoing this massive cultural revolution right now, where, like I said, our education system that we you know, traditionally trusted to educate uh, a class of sort of the elite leaders um, is completely degraded beyond repair, I think. It needs to be burned to the ground and built back up again. Um, it's teaching, uh, like, again, two generations now of Americans to, to despise the country that they're going to inherit, that there's no such thing as truth, uh, that, you know, the principles certainly of the founding, but just in general, the principles of liberal democracy are a sham and everything is a, is a, is a, is, is a sort of mask for power. And that's reflected in all of our elite institutions now. So every single center of power in American life has turned against America and Americans who live in the middle of the country, which is accelerating the degradation of our constitutional system anymore. Not to mention, you know, massive spikes in urban crime, uh, you know, especially in the last year, um, a, a sort of Maoist cultural revolution, particularly in the last year where, you know, uh, uh, the public square is certainly no longer free and is controlled by a radical group of activists who are also in cahoots with the people in power in the administrative bureaucracy and in the universities. And, uh, you know, record levels of decline of religiosity, the likes of which we have never seen um, in this country uh, and is, again, a a you know, John Adams warned us about this. Our constitution is made for more religious people. It can abide no other, right? We now have a minority of Americans who go to church every Sunday or, or synagogue or, or even mosque, right? So all of these things are intersecting crises. They're all related to one another. They're happening on both the cultural and political front uh, and, and the economic front, right? The hollowing out of blue collar jobs, um, the necessity basically of you know, the impossibility of raising a family on one income anymore, which does degradation to the family and has all kinds of downstream cultural effects, right? So America is coming apart of the seams. This is not the founder's America. In fact, this is not even the America that Bobby, you and I grew up in, right? Not, I mean, this is the, the America we were born into does not exist anymore. And it's a horrible, depressing conclusion, especially as someone who loves this country dearly more than anything. My, my parents' America is not the America we live in anymore. And what is infuriating to people on sort of my side of, of the aisle on the right is that so much the conservative movement just is sleepwalking. They're asleep at the wheel. They do not understand this or they don't understand the magnitude of it. And they don't understand the fact that like this actually requires a kind of radical restoration um, in response to these crises. They think that we can nibble away at the seams. We can cooperate. We can be bipartisan with people who hate us. We can just cut taxes and do occupational licensing reform. And that's going to fix this. And it's not true. It is not true. We live in a declining country in the skeleton of the America that we were born into. And we need to start acting that way before it's too late. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with much of your analysis there uh, in regards to constitutional norms, cultural decay. Um, I think I, 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 I think materially, uh, you know, the country isn't necessarily worse off, but obviously, you know, just material success doesn't necessarily mean, you know, things are better off that, that uh, you know, pe- people here are more are, are living more meaningful uh, lives. Uh, spirituality is down uh, tenfold. But, you know, I, I think that people at places like AEI, like the American Enterprise Institute, actually have 
you know, ideas about it. They're, they're, those people are not actually asleep on the wheel. I think they've been caricatured as such. You know, they're, they're caricatured as people, uh, you know, people like Ramesh Paniru and, and, and Jonah Goldberg and, and, and Irving, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Yuval Levin are, 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 are caricatured as people who, you know, are just these institutional uh, troglodytes who, 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 who are totally, uh, you know, divorced from, you know, the average, the problems of average day Americans. But these are people who actually are, are thinking quite deeply about the problems that the country faces. Uh, I think in 2014, they put out a, a pamphlet called Room to Grow that sort of addressed, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a creative application of conservative principles to the challenges of the, of the 21st century. Um, and they were willing to, you know, divorce themselves to, to, to move away from sort of market or- orthodoxy. Uh, but it got no attention. It, it, it got zero, uh, zero traction. And I think the reason why that is, is because, you know, the incentive structure in Washington is as such that, you know, obviously, as we discussed before with primaries, uh, your average Republican politician has to cater to the voters. And most voters only care about, you know, you know, these salient cultural issues. And, and, and you know, that's some of that. So, so some of that's good, obviously, because like we said, you know, the country is in decline culturally. But but it, Republican politicians never get to addressing, you know, the real problems that America faces. So I, I, I actually think our orientation should should be less populist. I think if we put, you know, more, you know, call me an elitist. But I think I think that that if, if politicians were actually able to focus more on policy and less on pandering towards their base, they could actually get some serious material wins for the people. They could focus on, uh, you know, reforming Congress in a meaningful way, getting the cameras out of the room, actually, you know, making committee work actually matter, things of that nature. Um, and uh, on, on the cultural front, um, you know, I, 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 think, I think the way we, we, we start, you know, winning back the hearts and minds of the country is by making, you know, intelligent arguments, not, you know, kind of being performative on Twitter. And that's the only thing I, I've seen from people on the populist right. So I, I, you know, I totally agree with your diagnosis. Uh, but I, I don't see how, you know, the populist nationalist right really gets us there. I don't see how people at Claremont are really, uh, you know, changing the dynamic in any meaningful way. So. I, I, I disagree with the last point that the populist right is all sort of performing on Twitter. Actually, I think the, the populist right has more wins under its belt than the sort of mainstream conservative movement. Well, what are they? I, I'm, I'm just sure. The entire movement to ban critical race theory, which has now taken hold in, you know, so the you know, legislation has been proposed yeah. in like 20 red states. I'd love to yeah, expound on that. Came from, yeah, yeah. Right. Came, came from Claremont. Uh, protecting women's sports banning, you know, biological men trying to protect gender came from Claremont and the populist nationalist, right? Um, the the movement now to in, in education reform, which is something that Claremont's been on top of a lot. Idaho is, is defunding major parts of the Idaho State University that teach sort of critical race and gender studies. That's directly coming from Claremont fellows who are there working with Idaho State legislators. So there's a, there's a sort of caricature, I think, in the um, in, in corners of the conservative movement that cultural issues are less serious, than economic or, or fiscal issues and that, you know, the culture war is all just screaming and yelling and, you know, we're the serious hard head people who want to do occupational licensing reform. And that's hey, actually, occupational they, licensing reform is important. <laughs> I'm pro-occupational licensing reform. It is not in the top 30 issues in America today, though. Um, and it is true that the culture war is a lot more heated rhetorically. And it, there are a lot of people, it's associated with a lot of people sort of just screaming and yelling. Um, but at its root are actually enormously important issues that are the issues that are going to determine the future of the country. 
higher education, uh, K through 12, public schools, uh, uh, you know, the meaning of gender, right? Uh, you know, sexual relationships and marriage, right? Like these things are the heart of any flourishing or decaying regime, depending how they're doing. Um, and there are policy solutions like the ones that have been advanced that can address them. The right just hasn't really been interested in them. And yeah. I'm, by the way, just to be clear, like I'm, I'm actually a defender of AI. I think they're better than most. I think they do a lot of interesting things. I spent a summer there. I certainly, they've got some people there that I really strongly disagree with. I mean, you know, Bill Crystal, I think is a total clown, um, but the, the, uh, they are, they are much more serious about inv being invested in these issues and are open to sort of debate with ideas from people like JD Vance, who's a fellow there um, than any of the other institutions. And they have a lot of hard-headed, serious people who are trying to translate these concerns, which start, I agree, as sort of unarticulated po populist concerns that aren't, don't necessarily translate to a coherent policy agenda into policy. And that's what elites should be doing. They should be taking the broad sort of small-D democratic impulses of the base, which I think are broadly directionally correct, but aren't particularly coherent yet or, or formed, and translating that into a policy platform. Um, that is what some people at AI are doing, and I, I respect them for that. I do not think they are thinking at a regime level, though, and I think a lot of them still fail to grasp the broader picture of a regime crisis. And, and Claremont, because they've always been the only think tank that really thinks about questions at a regime level, are the ones who understand this better than any other think tank still. Yeah, no, so I, I mean, I, I definitely uh, you know, admire a lot of, of what Claremont's done on the cultural front. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously... Uh, as a conservative, someone who's you know very opposed to uh, transgenderism and, and, and critical race theory and, and 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 things of that nature, but I think a lot of these debates kind of hit at the heart of two different streams in conservatism. I know you've talked about this before. You know the sort of classical liberal stream and a, and a more uh, you know traditional uh, stream, like like for example on this uh, you know critical race theory question uh, and and whether or not it should be in the classroom. You know on the university level, like what Idaho is doing. You know, there's also very, you know, an, an age old classical liberal principle of like, you know, academic freedom and how, you know, I, I, I'm not sure where I fall on these things. Like, like how much um, discretion do we want to give state funded institutions uh, in terms of setting their own curriculum because of the principle of academic freedom? Is that important? Or even, you know, when, when we talk about critical race theory and, you know, K through 12, uh, you know, Children, you know, I, I, I'm someone who believes that in, in school choice and localism, I think, you know, local school boards and school districts ought to be able to decide, you know, what they're teaching their, their kids. That's something that's always been, you know, that's an idea that's been present in the conservative movement for a while now. And it seems like we're retreating from that. You know, uh, if you look at like legislation coming out of a lot of these states, a lot of red states, where they're basically saying, no, local school boards don't have a say over how uh you know what what their children ought to be taught uh and you know i'm not david french i'm not someone who like fetishizes federalism and uh, but i i i think that we're kind of losing sight of of some of these important classical liberal principles right uh, I, I, like what is the it, it, i'm just curious where you fall out on this because no it's know, funny it, but it's attention it, yeah. i'm not i'm not sure myself but it's it's funny yeah, you bring something this I'm up grappling with yeah, right. It's, I'm writing a, a long essay, I, I think, for the Claremont Review of Books about the rights changing attitudes towards academic freedom, um, because 
academic freedom in America started as a left-wing idea. And the right traditionally was much more skeptical of it than it's become in the last couple of decades. It's only in the last 20 years or so that the right has decided that academic freedom is a conservative principle. Uh, and that I think largely has to do with us sort of retreating into a defensive crouch and trying to use academic freedom as a bargaining chip to try to still carve out a space for conservatives and especially in higher education um, as, a, as a compromise. I, it's an understandable impulse, um, but where possible, we should understand that academic freedom is not actually the highest goal. It's, free inquiry is really, really important for liberal education. Don't get me wrong, but there is something that is higher and more important than unlimited freedom in the marketplace of ideas, and that's truth and wisdom and eternal principles. Um, and uh, you know, especially in uh, monopoly K through 12 public schools, where we're talking about teaching 10 year olds, academic freedom is not a thing at all. It's, I mean, it's what the, what the teachers are teaching in a curriculum in a fifth grade public school classroom uh, is a specific state funded curriculum funded by taxpayer dollars that yeah. is necessarily teaching certain things and not teaching other things. Yeah, I, I so completely agree with you there. But what about every like aspect of a public, yeah, every aspect of a public school curriculum is a political choice. Academic freedom in a public K through 12 school is a myth. It's a fantasy. There's no such thing. It's not a, a, a higher education sort of universal. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. It's just the question is, should, should, in regards to K through 12, should, you know, should, should regulators, you know, in, in bureaucrats in Tallahassee be deciding what, you know, uh, you know, sc- school children in, 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 in Little Havana are, are learning or should like a local Miami school board be deciding that? I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, it's, their, it's their it's their state. So they should be like, that's actually one of their jobs as state legislators is deciding the, the curriculums of the schools in their state. And particularly if people are teaching toxic, false ideas to their children, they should step in and say, this is unacceptable. You should teach things that are sort of broadly uh, acceptable to the whole people of the state and that are true, right? There's a reason we don't, te- we're not allowed to teach creationism in in public schools, right? I mean, the the argument against in the Supreme Court was that it was it was uh, you know contrary to sort of separation of church and state, but it's also broadly recognized that it's not true if you teach creationism as truth in biology class, right? That's one of the other main yeah. arguments. I mean, about it, right? We've, made, we've, made, we've traditionally understood these things that yeah, like, yeah. academic freedom doesn't mean unlimited license to teach that the sky is purple, right? Yeah. It's actually, and it's sort of it's almost absurd that aspects of the you know small corners of the conservative movement have adopted as a conservative principle, which was never a conservative principle before, that academic freedom means teachers have unlimited license to teach whatever they want on their curriculum. That's against, it's just contrary, it's an insult to basic common sense, right? Like you, the the public schools are public goods. They are funded by our tax money. And we should have a basic say in what gets taught there. Teachers are not sort of this, this, this clarity that is beyond all sort of, political bias and is above political accountability. They work for us. They don't get to teach critical race theory if our state doesn't want them to teach critical race theory. For, for sure. Critical race theory is wrong, right? Yeah. So just on a more fundamental level outside of politics, we should be teaching kids true things. Critical race theory is based on a, a, a set of premises that are fundamentally and demonstrably false. Teaching that to little kids is incredibly toxic. It's contrary to the common good. And it's also just teaching kids things that aren't true, that we're expecting them to build their entire worldview on top of. It's bad for society. It's politically contrary to the traditional conservative understanding of first principles. It's toxic for children. And it's teaching kids things that just aren't true, which is the opposite of what public schools are for. 
all of those things conservatives used to understand until five minutes ago, somehow the sort of libertarianism, uh, libertarianization of conservatism has, has, has made us forget that. But we desperately need to recover it because that's the kind of problem with conservatism that is preventing us from actually being able to address these problems. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, I, I, I don't know how much libertarianization the conservative movement has actually gone through. That's the only thing I might uh, reject. Um, yeah, I mean, on the academic freedom front, I think that uh, for sure, uh, at the university level, uh, state-funded institutions they do have you know their public goods. They have that they, they should be accountable. Uh, and 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 uh, I'm in, I'm inclined to agree with you on 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 uh, you know anti CRT bills uh, when it comes you know in, in, in K through twelve education. I just I, I'm just wondering how you grapple with you know, the question of, of like localism, right? Like the idea that local school boards should be able to decide what they want to teach their kids. Maybe this is like a, a sort of a radical position, but I actually think that if a local school board in Alabama wants to teach their kids creationism, I think they should be able to. I, I just, and I, 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 that's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical of some of these bills coming out of, uh, you know, red state capitals. And the other thing is, uh, I mean, they're also just poorly written. I think, you know, Rich Lowry has pointed this out. It's true. Uh, yeah, know, some of them are certainly ill-defined. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so I'm just curious how you grapple with like the localism versus. Uh, yeah. yeah well, look, lo- localism is important. It is not an excuse to shirk our duty as conservative legislators to actually like enforce basic things. Localism, the entire principle of localism is based on a broader principle of subsidiarity, which is that certain aspects of authority are given to local. Uh, districts, um, but higher authority is afforded to the state, and then higher afford- authority is afforded yes. to the to the federal government, right? So the the you know school districts should have a a, a a decent amount of flexibility in deciding what they teach within limits, right? It is the state's decision to figure out where those limits are. It seems obvious to me that toxic critical race theory and equity equity um, curricula falls outside those limits, particularly in a deep red state. I mean, public schools in a, in a state like Arkansas have no business teaching critical race theory. And it's absurd that legislators let that yeah. go on for so long in a state that's R plus 30, right? That's not reflective of what the people in these local districts want. It's, it's the result of the fact that a lot of these school districts are populated by woke, you know, progressive educators because yeah. no one runs for them. Hopefully that's changing. But it, you know, the, it's, it's not as if this is actually true localism. Authentic localism is a reflection of the actual needs of the local community. This is not a reflection of the needs of the local community or the interests of the local community. Um, the state legislatures are actually much more in touch with what they want than the sort of woke educators who make it onto the school board because the only people yeah. who, who vote in school board <laughs> districts are, are teachers unions. Right? Yeah, so, no, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, I guess we, we probably should wrap up because I know you have to head out soon. But uh, in, the, in the final seconds we have, uh, mm. I know you've talked a lot about, you know, conservatism and environmentalism. I'm someone who really likes the outdoors, been to many national parks. I, I, I know you've written about this a little bit, but uh, can, you, can you speak to a little bit of, of the, the tension between, you know, conservation and conservatism? Do you think that tension uh, exists? And, and what do you think we ought to be doing about climate change? And how do you think the is it really loaded, but how do you think the populist right uh, is addressing that? You know, how do you think? You know? <laughs> well, yeah, th- those are two different questions. The populist right is, for the most yeah, part, yeah. On, the, on the margins, there's some good stuff on conservation, but yeah. particularly on climate change, the yeah. populist right and the right in general is just, you know, not that interesting climate change at the moment. Yeah. It's changing a little bit, but the people who are the best on climate change are the Republicans from, 
you know, the wing of conservatism that's not populist. And is East Coast Straussians, I guess. <laughs> yeah, or, or, you know, Mitt Romney. Yeah, yeah, I don't Mitt think Romney, Mitt Romney yeah, is yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I've, I've always had a soft spot for Mitt Romney. Yeah. But, um, but the, uh, in general, um, you know, I, I think environmentalism in terms of conservation is entirely consistent with conservative principles. It's about love of place, love of home, right? What Roger Scruton famously called oikophilia, which is love of home, um, and a desire to preserve those things and to pass them on to your children, right? Uh, I mean, there's nothing more Burkean sort of traditionally conservative yeah. than that. Um, climate change is more difficult. Like they're, they're one of the reasons that conservatives have been traditionally skeptical of it is that as a problem, it does pose um, issues that are sort of not totally har harmonizable with traditional conservative principles. It is an international global issue, right? Conservatives traditionally defend the local community, the nation state against sort of internationalist thinking, which we're rightly skeptical of. Climate change is an issue requires some kind of international cooperation yeah. um, and maybe even standards that apply across the globe uh, in, in the long run, which as conservatives are, are rightly, you know, and le legitimately skeptical of. Um, and it's also often been used as a Trojan horse to try to smuggle in broader progressive reforms. And that's Green New Deal. Yep. Republicans, for example. Yeah. Green New Deal is, 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 is the latest in a long yeah. line of this, yeah, right? Like, for sure. It's been, it's been used by progressives for, for decades to try to sort of argue for any number of other things that progressives want. So there's a reason conservatives and Republicans have a bad taste in their mouth. Um, and it's also often associated with going after red state industries like, you know, the fossil fuel industry, the fossil fuel industry does need to get phased out eventually, you know, to, to solve climate change. That's, yeah. that's, that's real. Um, but it's understandable that, you know, people in red states are skeptical. So all of those things, climate change is a little different than sort of environmental conservation as an issue, but it's enormously important. We're already feeling the effects of it, particularly, you know, in my home state of Oregon, where I am right now, it's going to become more and more of an issue in our lifetime. Um, and it's going to have really, you know, in the long run, it's going to have um, real effects that, that cause real sort of social upheaval in, in ways that destabilize a lot of the institutions and ways of life that conservatives care about. So we need to start advancing, as, as uncomfortable as we are with some aspects of it, we need to start advancing solutions um, you know, that are broadly as harmonizable with, with conservatism and conservative principles as we can, because the alternative is the destabilization of all the things that conservatives want to conserve. So we really don't have another choice. And I hope that conservatives can sort of uh, make their peace with that, as it were. Yeah, uh, I think we're on the same page, and I know you have to get going, so I guess we're going to wrap this up. But thank you again, Nate. Uh, really enjoyed yeah, man, the conversation, and uh, hope we can have you back eventually. So thanks yeah, again, guys, thanks, for Bobby. tuning in.